What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. Well, before we get into our conversation today, if you like what you're hearing and you haven't done so yet, please take a minute to leave us a review and a positive rating. It's the most effective way that you can help us get our message out there and reach more awesome people like you. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is a former professional soccer player, the winner of Season 3 Survivor Africa, and an entrepreneur. Ethan Zahn played goalkeeper for the Highlanders Football Club as part of the Zimbabwe Premier Soccer League. Being a professional athlete in Africa came with many experiences that would prove important in his post-soccer life. Upon retiring, Ethan was looking for his next adventure, so he applied for the hit TV reality show, Survivor. Ethan was selected to participate in Season 3, Survivor Africa. While recording the show, Ethan won a challenge that earned him a day away from the competition, so he went sightseeing. While out and about, Ethan stumbled across a hospital that had dozens of kids hanging out in a parking lot. True to form, he started an impromptu soccer game. While playing with the kids, Ethan was confused. Why would there be so many children in the parking lot of a hospital? The answer would lead him to his next purpose. Every child in that parking lot was there because they were either HIV or AIDS positive. This experience would turn out to be a pinnacle moment for Ethan. He realized that he needed to do something. Understanding the impact of soccer on local communities, Ethan leveraged his influence took his $1 million survivor winnings, and founded the nonprofit Grassroots Soccer. Today, Grassroots Soccer promotes HIV and AIDS prevention education to Africa's youth through soccer. He's an amazing human doing amazing things. Enjoy this episode with Ethan Zahn. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for spending your time with us, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Excited about this one. You've done a lot and we were just kind of talking off base about the big moments and I want to get into those, but let's, let's walk that a little bit for our listeners to where you are today. So you played professional soccer in Africa mm -hmm. and then you were actually on survivor Africa. Yeah. <laughs> won it. You're the survivor champion, I guess. Yep. And then got cancer, survived it. And now you run grassroots soccer, which is a nonprofit, correct? Correct. Okay. So let's, let's start there. What is grassroots soccer? What do you do or provide? Uh, so I'm, as it is, grassroots soccer is an adolescent health organization that's using the power of soccer to educate, inspire, and mobilize young people to overcome the greatest health challenges in their life. That's the mission statement, the jargon. But uh, basically what we are doing is we're using the world's most popular sport, and the heroes and the leaders uh, that this sport creates to break down barriers, build trust, and educate young people to adopt healthy behaviors. And uh, so that's kind of what grassroots soccer does as a whole. And we are uh, in 60 countries, and we've graduated about 13 million kids from the program. But what are you doing specifically to help kids take control of their health? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd like to, you know, step back a little bit because, you know, with the origins of grassroots soccer and how it got started, because it might just give you a bit of understanding of why, you know, I'm here and talking about it. Yeah, please. So like way back in the day, uh, I played professional soccer in Zimbabwe and, uh, you know, kind of like one of my strongest memories of when I was in Zimbabwe was of all the graveyards there uh, because my team we're called the Highlanders football club. And you'd, we'd all jump into these tiny, like white little vans and we travel this long distance to get to our way games. And I just saw these headstones because some of the headstones are perfectly organized one right after another. And then there are other areas where there were these like wooden crosses piled high overflowing on the streets. So I asked one of my teammates, the starting keeper, I'm like, dude, why are some people buried like that? And others like that. And he pointed to those wooden crosses and he said, that's where they bury all the people that die of AIDS. So that was like, for me, like in groups of headstones, like those are several people in one, in one plot, I guess it would be not even one plot. It was like, they were just taking crosses and throwing them in there. Like they were piled high, these crosses, oh, like wow. you see this nice organized section of the, the headstones, like we see here in the United States. Right. And then literally it's just like someone was just dumping wooden crosses and it was just this physical representation of everyone that was dying of this disease. You like, it was kind of like they were unnamed, just tossed in there, just like, and, uh, you know, that was like the first time I saw how one disease was destroying this community, you know, and I saw the pain and suffering for all these people who had, you know, touched by this disease. And so, um, that's kind of like what my first introduction to HIV and AIDS was. And so at that time in my life, I was like 27 years old and I didn't think anyone or any group of people could do anything to help this massive problem in all of Africa. So like to be honest, I didn't do anything. And I said, it's not my problem. Someone else will deal with it. It's in a land far away. And uh, I returned home from Zimbabwe and then I got chosen for Survivor. And that kind of leads into the whole Survivor thing and, and, and why when I went on the show Survivor, I wanted to use that money to do something good in the world. And that's what ended up was grassroots soccer. So it was started with the focus of addressing AIDS in youth and giving them the tools. And I was looking at some of your stuff. Are you actually working with the youth but you're also working with athletes, right? Because of their platforming, working with them to leverage their platform to work with the youth and to spread that message, correct? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the model of grassroots soccer is we train professional soccer players, local professional soccer players, coaches, and just peer leaders in the community with different curriculums on adolescent health and what's driving disease. And then we send those players or coaches into the classrooms or the soccer fields or the churches and the temples to deliver these health interventions. And just because soccer, I don't know how familiar everyone is with soccer, but like soccer is the most popular sport in the world. And if you wrap all the major league and minor league sports in America into one, that's kind of like how popular soccer is. And every little kid wants to grow up to be a professional soccer player, boys and girls. So you can imagine the impact when you send these players or these coaches into the classroom. I mean, the kids, their jaws drop and their eyes open. We change their behaviors and hopefully they can lead a healthy lifestyle. That's awesome. So this is this is a huge community of people that you've got bought into this, right? So can we talk a little bit about that? How have you built grassroots and built these communities? Obviously, the cause is important. So people buy into that, but you still have to pitch this idea to people and get them to put their time and effort into spreading these messages. Yeah, so definitely. Uh, it's it's you know, we started in 2003. So it's been definitely an up and down journey. And a lot of times, 
um, you know, it's, it's not in your backyard, it's in Africa, you know, and, and oftentimes it's, it's hard to, like you said, pitch people and get them excited about, you know, the work that we're doing over there. Um, but, you know, for us, we feel we can have the Im biggest impact in Africa. Cause like I said, soccer is huge. Every kid wants to play. And we just really kind of delivered this cool, it's like a distribution method for important information and soccer is that tool. And so it's been really fun for us because, the way we were able to grow to scale was just to partner with other organizations in other countries. And we train them on how to use the grassroots soccer curriculum. So it's like a trainers of trainers situation. Then we just kind of track the outcomes to just make sure everyone's doing the, the, the curriculums correctly. So how does a kid get involved with that? Then is, is it like a league that you put on and you have extra classes uh, along with it? Or what does it look like for a kid to be a part of grassroots soccer? Usually we, we partner with a local school or the Ministry of Education and it becomes, uh, it can either be part of the school curriculum, like their health curriculum, or it's an after school program. And um, to be honest, it's, um, you know, it's just, it's fun, it's engaging, it's games, and everyone kind of wants to be part of the grassroots soccer culture of what we've learned. So if you're a kid in a local area, you can sign up for grassroots soccer, you can show up at school, it maybe could be part of your school curriculum as well. And it's, it's less about soccer and it's more about health. So like, we're not training kids to be the next professional player, you know, but we're just definitely using soccer as the hook. And then, like I said, we're just kind of giving them important life lessons through the sport and the themes within the sport. What's the age range or demographic that you're addressing? Uh, we address like about 11 to 18 year olds. Yeah. And then usually the, the, some of those 18 year olds, once they graduate grassroots soccer, they can become a grassroots soccer coach um, and they can start doing the education themselves, which is kind of a neat little thing we got going on. You got a funnel system. Nice. We got a funnel system. Right <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate how interested you guys are in this. Uh, you know, obviously could, I love talking about it. You know, this is a, this is a baby. So, but um, yeah. It's, it's something that we're incredibly proud of. Yeah, this is something very different that we've talked to, right? Like, I think you're actually the first guest that runs a nonprofit. Is that right, Travis? I believe so, yeah. I believe so, yeah. So, so from AIDS and realizing this huge necessity and using soccer as the modality, now you address more than AIDS because you're in 60 countries. I, is that a fair guess? Yeah, that's definitely a fair guess. Not only is it just because the... The trajectory of HIV and AIDS is now changed. 20 years ago, it was a death sentence and now it's survivable, right? So as an organization, we've had to adapt and shift our message. And obviously there's a lot that goes with HIV and AIDS more than just, you know, making silly decisions. So there's the mental health component, there's female reproductive health, there's eight people that we serve that are HIV positive. We have parents that we're educating as well. We have co-ed programs, we have all girls leagues, all boys leagues, we have co-ed leagues. So there's multiple different curriculums addressing all the drivers of disease for adolescents in Africa. So how did you, because your background is soccer, you didn't have the background to build a nonprofit. I mean, there's a lot that goes with starting a business and getting these contacts and organizing these events and on and on and on. What did those early stages of that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, we, we were literally just four soccer dudes that had a good idea, right? You know, talk about right place, right time. You know, no one was using soccer. Everyone was using sports to help kids with like physical activity or to get them better at sports, but no one back in 2000 was using sports 
to deliver other information other than sports, right? So it was kind of, we were new at that time. It just didn't exist. Um, and so we, right place, right time. And, and obviously soccer is the world's most popular sport. So it was easy to, to, to figure out as a simple model. But early on days, you know, building grassroots soccer, uh, we took a bold but humble approach, like bold enough to try new things, but humble enough to know that we need a lot of help along the way. And so that's exactly what we did. We, you know, we early on and we had an incredible uh, board of directors that everyone had their role. We needed a lawyer, we needed a tax guy, we needed a graphic designer, we needed a web guy, you know, we needed a fundraiser. So all of our friends we brought in to the mix. Um, and over time, multiple different fundraisers and uh, developing our curriculum and proving that our curriculum could work was essential for us uh, to open up doors to bigger funding opportunities. So if, if we could prove that a kid who goes through grassroots soccer is less likely to contract HIV or more likely to stay in school or whatever those outcomes are, then you know, we can attract dollars for that. And so we early on invested in what we call monitoring and evaluation. So we need to monitor and evaluate the effectiveness of our program. And once we could prove that what we're doing is working, the floodgates opened um, and everyone wanted to use this model. Like it's like, like I said, it's a, it's a delivery mechanism. We have a, a grassroots soccer coach. So we could deliver any information through this model. Like we could do drugs and alcohol, which we're doing. Um, we can do mental health. We're doing that in Aberdeen, Scotland. So just the model of using games and soccer and coaches to deliver this mechanism is kind of our bread and butter. Is this, bore, is this boring? Because I feel like I, it sounds boring. I don't know. It sounds okay. And like really like, like minutia and technical and like nonprofit and what we do as an organization. So like, I don't know if this is exciting to people or not, but. Uh, I think it's good. We want people to, to see that it's possible for just an everyday, an everyday person. Like you were a soccer person. You had this idea to start something that you didn't have experience in. And it took a lot of people. So maybe some insight into that, like. How did you get people bought into that when you're going to them and telling them about this idea, not knowing what the model was at that time, right? You didn't know that the model would work or that you could really teach health awareness through this sport, but you have to get people excited about that. So what would you say to somebody who has an idea, something that they're passionate about, but isn't sure how to get people bought in? That's an interesting question. You know, yeah, you got to be, uh, got to be able to sell yourself and your idea, you know, to these other people. Um, and that's what Survivor's all about, actually. It's like one giant 39-day networking event where you got to like, you know, manipulate and sell yourself to other people and your ideas. But if you are have an idea uh, for a nonprofit, you got to get people bought in. It, I think it's, um, for me, it was obviously a, a direct connection to what I was doing. And early days, we would get in touch with our friends that had a similar experience through this activity, soccer. And so it was an easier sell probably for us because we were so looped into the soccer community and it's pretty, it's a pretty simple concept at the time. Um, you soccer and kids won't die. Like, yeah, where do I, where do I sign up? A lot of it was uh, a little, you know, right place, like right time because no one was doing it at that time. Uh, but I, I suggest people, if you have an idea and you want to understand if it's working or not, like I suggest if volunteering for another organization that's doing something similar and if when you put yourself in that situation and you may love it you may hate it you may realize this isn't something you really want to do so before you go down the 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 road of starting a nonprofit and getting your 501c3 and getting a board of directors and raising money i would try try it out first you know test it out see if you like it get in that field um, through volunteering with other organizations doing the same stuff 
I think that's really great advice. Cause what happens if you start down this path and you get into it and you realize you hate kids <laughs> right? and you're doing all these sick kid soccer camps. It's right. not going to go so well. Bad idea, right? <laughs> All right. So, so that's the high level. I love that. Uh, you, you, you alluded to survivor being a, a crash course to get you set up to do this networking. I, for those that haven't seen the episode or the, the season of your survivor, you won survivor Africa. What was that experience like? And how do you even get on that show in the first place? Right place, right time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like milk this for as long as I can. But um, I literally applied to Survivor as a joke. It was a, a complete. Basically, I was unemployed. I was living in New York City. I had just got back from Africa. I was coaching and still trying to play in the United States, but got cut from a couple uh, professional soccer teams here at the lower levels. And I was like, oh, screw this. I moved to New York City. I get a job in advertising because why not? the about four days before I was supposed to go in, they had a hiring freeze. And so any new employees weren't allowed to come in. So like, I literally did, I went out and I bought suits and jackets and shoes. Like all I owned was cleats and, and sweatpants. And then they like basically fired me before they even hired me. And so I'm like, what do you want to do to my roommates? Like, let's go make a video for survivor. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. So we ran around city all day. That's kind of how it happened. Like if it wasn't for a whole series of failures in my life, I don't think I would have ever tried out for this, uh, the show. Uh, necessity push you in that direction. Right. Right. So on survivor, what is, there's a lot that plays into that. You're talking about the networking and the manipulating people. Let's just say that. What was the most difficult part of those? What was it? 37 days, 39 days, 39 days. Yeah. 39 days. What was the most difficult part of that for you? Oh man. To be honest, you know, for me, the most difficult part was a little bit of the, the, the lying and the backstabbing and the kind of voting of people off. I know people enjoy that part of it. That was a difficult side of me. So it was like the mental side of the game was probably the more difficult part for me. Physically, I was totally fine. Um, I'd been playing soccer, you know, the environment was okay. Socially, it, it, was, a, it was a good game for me. Uh, kind of was my strategy was to be super social because like Survivor is a game of relationships. It's, it's how you interact with the other contestants that determine how far and like how well you'll do in that game. My whole strategy was to make myself like a crucial member of the like tribe, the community out there, crucial to everyone else's survivor. So without me, they wouldn't struggle in anymore and they couldn't vote me off. And that was my whole strategy and ended up you know working out pretty well. I'd say so. Yeah. So you win survivor. You're sitting there with Wait, this. Can I just go, can we dip in here? Like, yeah. The, the, Obviously, I've told this story before, and I hope it, it sounds like, you know, pairing my like time in Zimbabwe playing. So during actually during the show Survivor is kind of way which during the show Survivor I had an experience while playing the game that impacted kind of the next phase of my life and starting grassroots soccer. So when I was playing the game of Survivor, I won one of those reward challenges, if anyone's familiar with those, where I won these two goats, which I wasn't so happy about. Uh, but I got to take these goats to this little village of Wamba. And before I left this village of Wamba, I was hanging out in the parking lot of Wamba Hospital. And while I was in Wamba Hospital, all these little Kenyan children came out and they were like touching my skin. They're playing with my like Jufro, you know, like they had never seen anyone like me before. And that's when I, when I had a little hacky sack with me. So we just started playing hacky sack with these kids and we're laughing and we're smiling and we're joking around and, you know, having sharing this moment with sport that we both love in a language that we can understand. And then I, uh, right before I left the parking lot, I asked one of the nurses, like, why are these kids just chilling out in the parking lot of hospital? She says, well, these are the kids that are HIV positive. 
so like here here i am in the same spot as i was playing in, in zimbabwe like here i am but i mean like in the middle of this game of survivor this silly little game where i'm pretending to be african for a million bucks and i had that like real life experience and it was through soccer and so when i got back from the show i decided okay let's let's you know try to figure this out let's do something good and then i got a call from my buddy dr tommy clark who had the idea for grassroots soccer and i'm like i'm in where do i sign up let's do this thing so you see the the crosses on your trips and then this moment hits how were you able to connect those dots for yourself like what was it about those experiences that said i have to do something with this moving forward because because actually i didn't do anything about it at first right so i was playing in africa i saw that i saw this i saw the the devastation the pain and the suffering and i did nothing I said, it's not my problem. It's in a land far away. Continue my life back in the United States. Kept getting like news from, oh, this guy, the starting keeper, he passed away. This guy's HIV positive. Still, like I didn't do anything, right? And so I couldn't do nothing anymore. Like I had that experience on Survivor and I'm like, okay, something's telling me to do something here. Like, like, cause to do nothing is also to act, right? So here, all everyone's telling me like soccer, HIV, Africa, like now's your chance to actually do something like you have the opportunity to you know do a lot right now because you were in the right place in the right time and got on the show survivor and had a little bit of cash and people like you have a platform now so this is the moment and that was my do something moment how much do you think that platform of being on survivor helped you get going was it huge for that yeah i really do um i think it for me on a personal level for me it gave me a sense of purpose um kind of behind all this silly reality stuff this is way back in 2002 don't forget like reality tv was a little bit new it was just starting i mean 27 million people were watching survivor africa you know every week it's a lot of people it's not happening now so like it was like a big deal and so but it's also it's really kind of stupid and silly reality tv so for me to make sense of all of it i, I needed to have like something real and so then like everywhere I go or every little appearance I do, or if I get to go on another show or whatever, at least I can talk about grassroots soccer and something I'm, you know, it, it gives me a purpose to do what I was doing in the reality TV world, I guess you can say on early days. But people are listening now. Yeah, people are listening. But then we proved what we were doing. It wasn't just like a flash in the pan and we actually put work into it. And it's, it was, yeah, I've been in the business, I've been doing this for 20 years now. What does your role look like now? Because you're in 60 countries and I know you're not touching everything. So what have you found your bread and butter to be? My bread and butter, I would say early days, I was over in Africa, you know, in the field doing all that, that real stuff and curriculum development. But now I'm best kind of served as a fundraiser. So I kind of help run all the non-traditional fundraising streams of grassroots soccer. And that's like, you know, we have endurance teams that runs in marathons. We have a college and high school campaign. We have three v three tournaments on college campuses. We had the gala um, the other night on World AIDS Day in New York City. Those type of events um, is kind of where my sweet spot is. And how did you find that that was your role within this? Because again, you're a soccer player. You don't have a ton of experience putting on events, I would guess, or raising funds or connecting with, I was looking at the gala, right? Like there's some high profile people there that are giving money to the cause, right? And you're, you're shaking hands and kissing babies with these people. Is that something you're just natural, a natural talent that you have? Or where do you find that? I mean, I don't know if it's a talent, but uh, I just feel, you know, I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy hearing people's stories. Um, I feel like I'm a, 
a normal enough down to earth guy. And I, I just kind of enjoy learning about other people. So when you engage in these conversations, it's, it's real. It's not just like a, a sales pitch or that's at least how I feel about, you know, engaging in these relationships um, with these kind of high profile people. In the end, they're everyone's just kind of the same. Everyone's just a dude or a woman. Um, so I kind of put myself in, in that situation. Well, part of selling something like that, though, is just having a really clear message about what you're trying to do. How did you get so clear on your message to where, I mean, you, even talking to you today, you, you've got this down. I mean, you know exactly what you do and why you do it. How long did it take? And like, what did it take to get so clear on the message? Well, I think, I mean, we're, we're selling, you know, we're selling like hope. We're selling um, life of a child. And so, and I'm selling my personal relationship, you know, so when, you know, for the longest time I, you know, was on the giving end of charity, philanthropy and community support with grassroots soccer. And like, I'm not HIV positive. Like I don't live in Africa. I'll, I'll never know what it's like to be HIV positive, I hope. Um, but like, I do know what it's like to walk into a doctor's office, sit down and get a, like a life-threatening diagnosis with a 50% cure. And so like when I was diagnosed with cancer, for me, it actually like flipped the switch because now all of a sudden I was on the, I needed the, the, the help, the charity, the community support, the philanthropy. So I've seen this world from both sides. So I feel like having that personal connection to uh, whatever you're working on is a game changer. And that's kind of what helps me, drives me forward because I can relate to the kids in Africa that we're dealing with potentially, you know, um, and I've been that guy that's I've needed right place, right time. Like an experimental new drug came out of the market just when I needed it in the exact moment. And I was able to get on it and it saved my life. Right. So right place, right time. And this was, you had already started grassroots, right? Or were in the process whenever you were diagnosed? I had already started it. So like timeline 99, 2000 playing in Africa, 2001 survivor, Africa, 2009 cancer. Oh, sorry. 2001 survivor, Africa, 2002 grassroots soccer started 2009 cancer then 2012 uh the cancer returned oh so you you've battled that twice twice yeah so how did it can we get into that a little bit yeah oh yeah totally totally so you're sitting in the room the first time you you said you knew what it was like to get that news that this is a 50 percent survivor rate and put this in context for you what was that moment of like holy crap my life is different now when i was 14 years old uh, cancer, cancer came into my home and it took my dad away from me. So I think my life changed at that moment in my life. And I realized that at an early age, kind of just life is uh, short life is real. You know, I, all I wanted to do was sit in my room, not talk to anyone. It was, it was a tough time in my life, but lucky for me, I got, you know, the community around me and my soccer team, like those are the people that kind of lifted me out of that dark moment. And so like bringing that theme of community through my life is, was, was a big part for me. That was my whole strategy on survivor. Right. And then I get off survivor. Now all of a sudden, like I needed the community for myself to survive again. And so it's just been this roller coaster of, uh, emotions for me. And so when I was diagnosed, it was like, I mean, I was 35 years old on top of the world training for the marathon and, you know, I had, all I had was like itchy skin on my body and like, no one could figure out what it was. And I tried everything on the market and no one, still no one figured it out until I found a swollen lymph node in my neck and a, a swollen mass in my chest. And I was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer called CD20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma, which uh, I'd never heard about at the time. I don't expect anyone to know what it is, but um, yeah. So to me, 
when I first cancer equal death because my only connection to cancer was through my dad. So it was a, a rough go at first. Yeah. So how do you stay focused on fighting through that? If that's your experience going into it, that's going to give you a mindset of like, why fight this? Why? And that fight is hard. Yeah, that fight is hard. Well, you know, I, I think I, I, I want to feel like I took that athlete's mentality into it. You know, it's survivor's mentality. Obviously, survivor, you're playing for a million bucks and, and not for your life. But if it wasn't for survivor and like, I literally, I knew, and being an athlete, let's be honest, like I knew how far I could push my body. Like on survivor, you are deprived. You, it's a, it's a game that like is touches every part of you, like mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental, you're skinny, you're not eating like similar experience when you go through cancer, but it, you know, um, the outcomes could be different. So like, I knew how far I could push myself. And I think that really helped me going into cancer. It sounds weird, but, but it did. And so, yeah, it's just that, that, that the drive to, to win and to, to, beat the odds, I guess. There was no really other outcome for me other than to beat, beat cancer. And then you were talking about your community through all this. One of the things that we talk a lot about on the show is finding that intersection of where the things you want to do meet the things that you're good at. And you carried this thread about your community and ability to build community and network from the time you're 14 and facing your dad's passing, right? Is that something that you realized young that you had a talent for? Is that just something looking back that you now recognize you've had skill for? How are you able to leverage that along the way? Leverage community? Yeah. Or that, that, that skill set, not the community itself, but like your own strength in that environment. I don't know. I, I, just knowing that, uh, you know, feeling comfortable enough to be able to, you know, just find, I actually don't know how to answer that question right now in terms of that. I mean, I play, you know, the team and the team atmosphere I come from a family, a big, big family, two older brothers. So like maybe I've never, I've been a, like a leader, but never led something on my own. So I feel more comfortable, like partnering with other people, working together, striving to, for a common goal amongst a group of people versus, uh, you know, I've always gone for the team sports than the individual. I don't like golf or tennis or anything like those sports. So it's like, I, I'm a collaborative type of guy, I feel. And so just, you know, I think that's where I'll go with that. Yeah, that's that's good because I think that's unfortunately the thing that we're trying to get away from the show is a lot of people just kind of fall into it. And after the fact, you can be like, that was the strength that carried me through that. I was good at building community. I was good at fill in the blank, whatever. But if we can find those things sooner and leverage them to put ourselves in right places, like you find yourself in a lot, it, that's that's kind of what we're hoping. If you can recognize it and be like, you know what, this is the thing and this is how I'm going to use it to get to my next phase. Yeah, we actually get that your answer. We get that quite often of like, I, I don't really know, like I was just good at it. Um, but I think a lot of people don't give themselves credit for what they're good at like that. Like you're just good at building community. You're good at getting people on board and you're good at selling an idea. I like connecting people, you know, for some reason, because of, I think what happened to me in my life, I find myself in a lot of different pockets of really interesting people. And, um, and I feel like I know a little bit about a lot of things. And I know someone in those industries. So a lot of people, a lot of the information comes through me. And, you know, I love connecting like this friend who's maybe in cannabis with this friend who's in tech. I'm like, oh yeah, you guys should talk. Like, that's what I love doing the whole being a connector. And so I guess my, I guess my biggest skill set, and even, you know, getting back to the, the gala is in the and community. I like, I can, I like bringing people together that I know will work well together to create a team to do something, right? So with the gala, for example, first time we ever did in one New York City, like 
I, you know, the event planning team. I knew those guys. I got the PR folks, the Joe Favrito, got the auction guys. I picked the chef. I got the talent. So like all that stuff, but I didn't do it myself. I just brought everyone together and then let them, trusted them to go out and, and do what they do best. So I think maybe that's kind of what I'm good at. Like a puppet master. <laughs> like Survivor, right? Yeah, exactly. Totally. I was like, I, the assistant coach, you know, you feel like as the assistant coach out there, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm good at relaying information to the head coach. The team can come to me with whatever they need. I'll filter that information. I'll bring it up there. The coach will come down to me. I'll filter that, put it out in, in to the rest of the team. Nice. Let's, uh, I would like to talk a little bit about your professional soccer. You played in Zimbabwe. You said, uh, how long did you play professional in Africa? I only about a year and a half. Okay. What was the lead up to that? Lead up to that was I played soccer my whole life, high school, college. I went to small division three, uh, college. So nothing major there. And I actually, I had high hopes of being a doctor. And, um, so after college, I moved to Hawaii because I was a minor in marine biology. So I'm like, oh, let's move to Hawaii. I want to find a job, study for the MCATs. Life will be great. Didn't find a job in marine biology. I uh, ended up um, cleaning toilets and making beds at a youth hostel in Waikiki. And because uh, if you work for the state, work in Hawaii for 60 days, you get health insurance. So that's what I did. Just let you know. But long story short, there was a, I saw in the newspaper, there was a tryout for a professional soccer team in Hawaii called the Hawaii tsunami. I think it was like a PR stunt or something. And, but I'm like, sure, why not? Like I was still pretty fit. It was, you know, two months after the season in college. And so I head over there, went for the open tryout and, uh, and I made the team as a walk on backup goalkeeper. And then I was like, screw med school. I'm going to play soccer for the rest of my life. And, uh, that's kind of how it got started. And so you were on this professional circuit in Hawaii as a backup goalkeeper. That was your position. Yeah backup goalkeeper and it was an interesting time in u.s soccer so this is in 1996 97 98 if you think about that so there wasn't even a really a professional soccer league in the united states until after the world cup in 1994 so one of the reasons uh, one of the reasons the united states had the world cup in 1994 is that part of that we would get money to start a professional soccer league so what ended up happening is like all these great players that were in like playing just kind of high level, uh, semi-pro got drafted to play in the major league soccer, which led a big void for like average soccer players like myself to make a team. And so right place, right time, I guess you could call it. And, uh, yeah, they're, you know, literally they're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was a good goalkeeper. I wasn't anything crazy or special. Um, but you know, I was good enough to, to play the lower levels here in the United States and then in Africa. Yeah. That's, uh, that's always a fun opportunity. I have a basketball background. I coached college basketball for a while Where? and we always talk to these guys, Utah Valley university. Excellent. So Provo, Utah. And we always talk to these guys, like everybody wants to go professional. Everybody wants to go to the league, but there's also this opportunity basketball. It's Europe, you know, Mexico has a really good league. It's like, you don't have, if you don't make it to the NBA, which is not likely, it's a very small percentage. Your career is not over. There's still a huge opportunity. If you're willing to take that chance and put yourself out there and go to a different league. What are some of those fun experiences in your travel? So Hawaii, were you there before you went to Africa? Or did you touch a couple teams? No, I was there before I was in Hawaii before I was in Hawaii and then um, in Israel and then uh, Cape Cod Crusaders and Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and then to Africa. All right. So there's got to be some cool stories here, right? You played for some different teams. You've done some travel. You've probably had some pretty rough experiences trying to make it work as a professional athlete. Yep. Man, so many stories. I'm trying to think of which ones are appropriate for, uh, 
your listeners here. But no, I really enjoy. I agree with you uh, on your. You know, I'm glad you're you're sharing those stories with your players because yeah, there not too many kids are going to play pro even here in soccer as well. And so, but yeah, there's a world of opportunity, not only to play in another country professionally, but to use that sport to do other things, you know, in the world. Once again, it just gets back to using sport for social good. So like, there's a lot of things you can do with sports that are not actually playing. But for me, I guess like one of the crazy experiences I had, I mean, it wasn't in Zimbabwe, Kate, to keep going back there. But um, so I was backup goalkeeper. Uh, I finally got my first game. And I was playing in the reserve team. It was pouring down rain. I used to have a big curly afro. So I was in goal. I make a save. I distribute the ball. And this is my first game. And everyone, all the fans come and they're right behind the goal. And they come early to watch the, the reserve game before the first team match. And so I made the save. And everyone's cheering. They go, yeah, it's my key. What's that? My game. They're yelling. They're screaming at me. I'm like, this is awesome. They freaking love me. Like, this is the best moment of my life. I'm thinking, okay, they're screaming, go USA or like captain america or whatever so i run over to the sidelines after the game i'm like dude did you see they love me they're they, they love me awkward silence and they said do you know what they were saying i'm like no they're going pubic hair pubic hair pubic hair <laughs> <laughs> and so like that was my uh that was my entry into the uh zimbabwe uh professional team and then the paper the next day is like they said american import import evans zoe they didn't say ethan's on they said american import evan zoe did whatever and then zoe actually means like slow white elephant so like my nickname for the rest of the time there was slow white elephant <laughs> it was not a legend was- overnight <laughs> right exactly yeah <laughs> oh man that was a fun experience my goodness uh, yeah a little language barrier there <laughs> right yeah totally right yeah how was that growth process being in in Africa and Zimbabwe playing a sport where I'm I don't know your team was probably made up from people all over the place you're far from home what is that like for you it was a a really interesting situation where like I was like I said 27 years old I went over to Zimbabwe because I had a, a friend who was playing over there as well. And this guy, a kid named Kirk Friedrich, he was playing with me on the Crusaders, went over there. And he's like, you got to come over there here. It's awesome. We need a keeper, whatever. So I flew over on a whim. And what was interesting is we stayed with a wealthy white Jewish family in Zimbabwe. I happen to be Jewish. And then we would go play with the locals and the townships. And, and you know, these guys, they're, they're not, it's not like a, it's not English Premier League here. You know, this is, we got 25 bucks if we won. We got um, 15 bucks if we tied, three bucks if we lost. It wasn't like major, but over there, that was a lot of money for those guys. So it was for the experience. It was for walking into the stadium and seeing 40,000 people screaming, right? You're not getting that here in the United States in the lower level leagues here. So for me to fulfill that like dream of like playing professional, I I wanted that experience. big lights. Yes. Right. There were no lights. Oh, no, there were lights there, actually. But yeah, so like just, you know, the experience of being being over there, I, you know, I was, I was really different from them. You know, I ate different foods. I was a different religion, spoke a different language. I had classes, you know, as a vegetarian over there, like, what the hell is that? Like, so it was just this really interesting experience and being um, a minority over there uh, was, was also an interesting experience. Was it hard to be accepted? in a different culture like that you just said you're a vegetarian i know like that's probably pretty foreign to them it was it was it hard to to gain acceptance you know i i think if i were just to meet them in everyday life yes however 
soccer, right? The ultimate connector, the language. So uh, it was easier to get accepted because I could play and I was there every day, you know, doing the same fitness as they were playing in the same games, driving the same distance. So like, I think if it was not for soccer, it was over in Zimbabwe specifically at that time, there is a big divide between kind of the local Zimbabwe community and kind of the, I guess, um, you know, the other, the white, um, you know, Zimbabweans as well, the Rhodesians, the Zimbabweans, the people who uh, immigrated up from South Africa. So, yeah. What was your favorite thing about the Zimbabwe culture? Oh, man, I, I feel, I, for me, it was like a, like a refresher course on the important things. They really enjoyed like laughter and handshake and just sitting around and chatting a good meal. Like those like pure, simple things. I lost a little bit, you know, I lost some of that, I think um, just in, just in my life at that time. So like, I enjoyed that, you know, I enjoyed the slower pace, if you will, and really getting to know people for who they are and enjoying those simple things. And yeah, they're just a really kind uh, culture is what I, what I learned, very giving and welcoming, even though they don't have a, a lot. And that was really refreshing. What a great experience. So you're over there for a year. You said you're getting anywhere between three and what, 25 bucks a game. Mm -hmm. You're doing, this is your full-time gig. How is, how is the lifestyle over there? How are you surviving off of this for people that don't understand how different it is from where we are in our $1,500 laptop right. that we're talking on to living off three bucks a game. Right. Well, I had, you know, I had saved up some money enough to live off of, and it's very, it's pretty cheap over there. You can get by with very little at that time. And so, uh, it wasn't a stretch for me to be able to live there for a year with what was going on. You know, meals were pretty much covered, just playing a little bit of rent and then just some, some fun, fun stuff on our own. How often were you all playing competitions, matches? I mean, it was, it's ever, it was a full-time gig. So every day, you know, training, um, games on weekends, tournaments, all that stuff. Okay. So it was like a full professional series, just like it is here. I mean, you're talking 40,000 people. So. Yeah. So like, uh, Zimbabwe has the Zimbabwe premier league. There's 18, 20 teams in the premier league. Um, just like we have the NBA and there's so many teams here in the NBA or the English premier league or the German league. Um, Zimbabwe just had their own league. So you're a national treasure then. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so what is, what is the response been? Cause you're, you're this white Jewish guy from America who plays a year in Zimbabwe. And now you're coming back to help solve childhood AIDS and HIV. What has been, or early on, what was that reception of this is what I want to do. This is how I want to get involved. I assume it would be welcoming because of the cause we've talked about. It's easy to get people bought into, but you're, you're an outsider. So what is that experience like? Like, did you have battles with that? Uh, well, we are, we learned early on that we needed to get as few American outsiders, you know, in front of the kids as possible. So we are, learned early on that we needed to partner with like lo the local community to make this stuff happen. So that's why we use local professional players, local coaches, local peer leaders to do the education because it was a bunch of you know, people from Europe and America coming in and doing this, it wouldn't, the trust isn't there. The, the, the mentorship isn't there because we just come from two different worlds. And so I felt, you know, 
we felt great about that decision because um, it was an easy one and it enabled us to do what we do best, which was to like, we were teaching the coaches on how to teach others. Um, and so for us, that's uh, kind of how it went down and, and I feel okay about that. But you know, the flip side, selling that whole idea here in the United States, it's always like, why, like why Africa? Like, why don't you help people in your backyard type situation? So that's kind of the biggest, you know, um, pushback we get often. I mean, you're, you're solving a, you're approaching a cause that's important and has, has been a problem for a long time and doesn't have a lot of options to it. And you're still bringing this to other cultures, right? Like in America, you're probably not talking about HIV and AIDS. So what are the main things that you're addressing to bring to the U S for grassroots soccer or yeah, to bring this to your backyard or are you, have you even done that yet? Is it even to America yet? No, we, we, we have no programs in the United States. We don't run any programs oh. here. Yeah. So we're based here. We do our fundraising here. We have our you know offices here, but we have an office here, London, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and, and two in South Africa. So we don't do any programming here. So it's an Africa focus. You said 60 countries. So there might be a couple outliers, but like, that's really the intent of this. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, yeah. You know, but just, you know, we're getting into different modes of, you know, now we're doing a lot within and well, COVID happened. So we created a whole new COVID curriculum and made that open source and people downloaded it from all over the world, which is great. We are now obviously getting into the whole mental health side of things because mental health is huge within whether uh, making decisions when you leads to the moment where you may make a bad decision to get HIV, right? So we're getting the whole mental health stuff. And that's interesting because mental health in the world right now is like a, it's a buzzword, right? Everyone's talking about mental health. And uh, that's a good thing. You know, we, we were talking about it a long time ago, but no one else was. So now when it's front and center, it's easier for us to jump right in and, and do what we do and, and try to find the funding to roll out some programs, with mental health. So you're seeing a need even, I mean, with the, the diseases that you're trying to address and, and all that stuff, you're still seeing a need for mental health awareness too. Is there, is there a direct correlation between the, the physical health and the mental health that you're seeing uh, in other cultures? Well, I mean, just you know, general common sense, obviously, I, I personally believe there's a, you know, a direct connection between your, you know, your, your physical health and your mental health. That's my personal belief, but we don't necessarily, that's it because we don't necessarily focus on the physical, much of the physical side of um, their health as much as the mental health and, um, other stuff like female reproductive health, uh, gender norms, uh, you know, uh, gender-based violence, uh, HIV and AIDS, how it's spread, how to protect yourself, multiple congruent partners, those types of things. We, we don't necessarily focus that much on uh, physical health. It's good. We should, we could get into that. Yeah. There, you know, we are hoping obviously by playing the sport of soccer and playing these games is a little bit physical, but we don't focus on that specifically as much as we should maybe yeah can we and this again might be too much in the minutiae but i'm intrigued with it so we're going to go down that path right like i'm interested with the curriculum development of this because you're using soccer as a modality to teach these these skills mental health tools techniques whatever your curriculum entails i don't know too much about those details but for somebody who doesn't have a curriculum development background can you kind of take us through connecting this physical activity to HIV and AIDS awareness, that seems like a jump, having a bunch of kids playing soccer, and then we're just going to sneak in these conversations every once in a while. Okay, let's say I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards. Um, so we are a data driven company, uh, 
data-driven organization. So we, uh, a new fact or new statistic may emerge within HIV and AIDS. For example, a bunch of years back, uh, the stat came out that an adult male who is, who is circumcised reduces the rate of HIV transmission by 60%, right? Okay, so this is a huge deal. Big study, big result. Now, basically, how can we get as many people, young men, circumcised as possible? So now, how do we turn this statistic into a game that can drive outcomes? So, okay, so we, we use the sport of soccer and we tell someone that, okay, if you have a goal, goals this big, Let's uh, reduce the size of the goal 60%. And now look how the goal is. Awesome. Now, all of a sudden, let's put a goalkeeper in there. The goalkeeper can represent a condom, a batter barrier. All right. Okay. So now you have a goalkeeper and you have a shorter, smaller goal. Now, okay, maybe there's a wall. You can set up a wall in front of the ball. So not only do you have a condom, now you're making smarter choices in terms of your, you know, your mental health and whatnot. And therefore you come back again and now, now try to score on the goal and if the ball represents HIV. Does that makes sense. It's really difficult to score on a goal that's reduced by 60%. You have a goalkeeper, you have a barrier. And so that's kind of how we use the themes within the sport to deliver health interventions and, and health and, and introduce topics within health. Did I explain that okay? Yeah, it's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's just using that relatability of what they're already doing, what they already know to get this new point across. I, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, another game that we play is called find the ball. And it's just to show that the example is you line up 10 kids like this, they're all got their hands behind their back. They're passing a ball. You say, stop. Everyone's like, where's the ball? Just by looking at someone, you can't find that ball. You don't know just by looking, even if they're fat or bald or sweating, just by looking, we can't tell what they're, if they have that ball, if that ball represents HIV, right? Um, so now all of a sudden, if you can't tell by looking at someone, what's the only way you can tell if you're HIV or have the HIV ball, you get tested. Okay, well, where can you get tested? You go to the clinic. How do you get to the clinic? So those types of situations. So how does this look? You're getting these kids, you're teaching these concepts. I love this. I think it's really smart to bring play into this and attach it to something that they're familiar with, with people that they're familiar with and look up to. I, I can't help but revert back to like when we were kids and they're like, okay, it's homecoming weekend, sign this thing that says you promise not to drink. And then everybody leaves and like, yeah, okay, I'm going to drink this weekend. It's homecoming anyway. Right. And you take these vows and these pledges and they don't really do anything. What is the sustainability after someone goes through your program to make sure that they have the support that they need or that they're staying on track? Great question, man. I appreciate that. Um, uh, we like, I get, uh, get back to the whole monitoring and evaluation. So we take pre-questionnaires, post questionnaires, six month follow-up, one year follow-up with most all the kids that go through the grassroots soccer program. So we can track them over a certain amount of time and therefore, you know, see if what we did impacted their life in that short amount of time. Hopefully with what we have taught them that they can make those decisions and they can be on track. But part of our curriculum is exactly what you said. We, we educate them on finding you know, the people you can talk to or who to see if you have issues or what to do if you're in this scary situation, uh, how to protect yourself. So we're hoping that what we taught them sticks. Um, and we do have some longer base studies, five years out, 10 years out that um, we're still in the middle of right now to see the real, real impact of that. And now you're getting people coming back as instructors and teachers, which I think should, that gives you some data, right? Totally. Yeah. There was a fun experience where, um, it wasn't me, another one of our coaches, he went just for an early morning jog. He was in Ethiopia and he saw in the corner, like what looked like 
kids doing grassroots soccer drills and he went over there and they were just doing grassroots soccer drills on their own on a weekend with no instructors so like in that who wants to go on to play hiv aids games it's not like the funnest thing to do in the world right so like but to see these kids doing it, it's just like a, it was a testament to that we're doing something right that's awesome that's got it that's oh that gives me chills i love that thank you and i appreciate you guys listening to me man it's awesome yeah. Hey, this is a message that needs spread. So if we can help promote the cause, that's definitely what we're here for. We love this. This is, these are the things that we want to connect people to. This is important work that you're doing for sure. Thank you. Do you have any intentions of bringing this to America? Uh, as of right now, we do not, we do not have, um, you know, we feel that soccer is not the biggest sport here in the United States. So where we can have the most impact at the most scale is outside of the United States using soccer specifically. Uh, we definitely have partnered with other organizations who are using sports as a tool here in the United States. We help them in the curriculum and, and things along those lines as a technical advisor, but we don't have actually have programs running here. I don't think we will. That's smart though. Stick with what you're good at, right? Don't try to bring this here and take from your resources if it's not going to work here. Let other people take that torch for you through their basketball or NFL or whatever that looks like. Smart. What is the, the government support in these communities? Cause I, you know, HIV AIDS, I've never actually spent any time in Africa, but you hear that it's, it's an ongoing problem and it's been a problem for some time and everybody's trying to get ahead of it, but doesn't know how do you have support from the local governments or is there pushback when you go into these places well, early days, lots and lots of pushbacks. It got back to your early message, like a bunch of white dudes, you know, here in, in Zimbabwe telling them how to live their life and wait, this just didn't fly, right? Uh, they thought we were sp spreading political propaganda. We were getting kicked out of schools left and right. No one would trust us until we brought the locals in and realized early on that that's that was the, model, the better model. But yeah, so early on, we definitely got, there was a lot of resistance. I mean, don't forget HIV and AIDS is, is was a really scary topic, a lot of stigma associated with disease. No one was talking about this. People are dying, everyone knows why, but no one's doing anything about it. So, you know, keep that in mind where the disease was back then. So a lot, a lot of resistance, but once uh, we started to kind of, you know, get it, like I said, get back to proving what we are doing was working and taking the pressure off of parents to talk about sensitive subjects about teachers to talk about sensitive subjects about coaches we were going to take that role they were a little bit it, it started to open up you know doors for us because it's it's tough and we knew how to do it and and like you said do do what we're good at i'm intrigued with the we started with a bunch of white guys and there's pushback we learned early on that we needed to get the locals involved did you have some of those other moments? Cause I think those are the type of moments that kill something like this. That's important, right? We go in, we get pushed back. Nobody's buying into this because we're different. It's easy to just close the doors and say, you know what, this isn't going to work for us. Maybe a better opportunity for someone else, but you found a way around that. How, how come you didn't just close the doors? Because we knew it was, a, we knew it would work. We kind of, I don't know how to say this, but like it, it was, so simple and so easy and we knew the power of soccer and like the heroes these soccer players become to these kids that like it, it just seemed like a really good idea and we, we knew it would work and when we just tried it stuff early on it, it was an instant success i guess you can say it was an easy decision to move forward when we hit all that resistance plus our teammates were dying you know like I, our my team of 22 people there's like nine of them left now 
It's crazy, right? Because of HIV or AIDS. Uh, yeah, because they passed away of HIV and AIDS. And like, you know, statistics, they numb you to what the real problems are. I mean, you see it happening now with COVID, right? Like 600,000, a million people, like they're just numbers on a screen. They don't mean anything to anyone, but they're not just faceless numbers. They're your friends, your families, my teammates. And so that's uh, what, what kept driving me. Like it's a really horrible, lonely way to die, both COVID and HIV and AIDS. I mean, COVID's a lot like what HIV AIDS was back in the game. A lot of misinformation. We had to re-educate entire communities, people, teachers, everything. We had to re-educate them on there's so many much misinformation back then about HIV and AIDS, how it's spread, who's getting it, all that stuff. Same happened with COVID. It's just a repeat of what was going on. Lots of misinformation out there. Lots of you know issues with people deciding if they want to get the vaccine or wear the mask, all that stuff. Same exact stuff. Ways to cure it. Drink bleach. In Africa, have sex with a virgin. Like, it's crazy time, you know? Um, so we had to re-educate everyone back then. And just like we have to re-educate now. And so to, to drive forward is like, I didn't want more of my friends dying of AIDS all the time. Uh, not a bigger cause than that to keep you going. <laughs> I pick the big, I pick AIDS. I pick cancer. What else? What other global <laughs> pandemic you want to go after? <laughs> yeah. Autism, you know. <laughs> do something important, would you? Yeah, you don't play small, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Has that always been kind of your style? Go for broke? Just swing for the fences? I mean, Survivor, that's the, the fluke, right? Like that's swinging for the fences. It seems to just keep cropping up. Yeah. You know, I always say that I like to uh, put myself in like new and unknown set of circumstances where I force myself to grow. I, I thrive on uncomfortable situations, you know, as a goalkeeper in soccer, like you're nuts. You got to be crazy to be a goalkeeper. They say, um, you know, when I did like theater, I, they always gave me the role as like the woman, someone had to dress up and embarrass themselves or the really like, uh, you know, obscure characters. I don't know. It just happened to be put myself in these risky situations. Was that true? Even when you were a young kid, I was the youngest of three brothers. So maybe I just always try to get attention on me a little bit. I don't know. Um, Ethan will do it. Hey, yeah. Ethan. Yeah, exactly. Let's blanket <laughs> and throw him down the stairs. Sure, that's a good idea. You know, uh, yeah. Is do you think that's something that can can be developed if that's not your natural style? I do. How so? How can it be developed? How so? I can tell you is it, obviously. So I was a really shy guy. I was, a, and you know, after my dad died, I was very introverted. I was shy. I was a good athlete. I was smart enough. Like I got along with people like, you know, one-on-ones, but just, I was, I go to a party. I'm the guy in the corner, you know, um, I was a really shy guy. And so the, when you go on survivor, you take personality tests, psychological tests, you know, um, fitness tests, all that stuff. And so when they cast me, the doc, the psychologist literally said, the reason we're you're different than everyone else out here, where you have peaks, they have valleys. We have valleys, they have peaks. Like they're like you're not an A-type personality. You have compassion and feelings for you know for other people. You are like so you are like opposite of everyone. So we want to see what happens when you put that type of person with all these other people, and because Survivor is a social experiment. And so then getting on Survivor and then getting what happens after Survivor, it was like I said, it was. Uh, I was just thrust into these crazy situations where I was forced to be outgoing and gregarious and talk in front of a camera and, and, and actually approach someone first to shake their hand. Like that was new experience for me and it was difficult. And so now I think I'm pretty good at it and I can speak in front of an audience and I can, you know, 
not feel embarrassed. I'm not afraid of embarrassing myself. Um, those were all learned. I, I would have never, if, if it wasn't for Survivor, I don't think I would have ever been like I am today, like a little bit more confident and gregarious and uh, stuff like not afraid of failing. So if somebody wants to get better at being uncomfortable, they just got to go on Survivor. Yeah, just go on reality TV. Yeah, <laughs> no big deal. That seems easy. <laughs> Yeah, how did that look after Survivor? Because you're famous now for a moment. Like those were big shows for a while. You're getting, are you getting called to the Tonight Show? And you're on, uh, maybe not Oprah at the time, but like you're getting daytime television interviews, right? All of it, all of it. Yeah, you are thrown into everything. Uh, David Letterman, me, uh, Justin Kelly, Rosie O'Donnell, Late Night with Craig Kilborn, like all these old school Hollywood Squares, Family Feud um fear you were factor. on hollywood squares yeah get out of here or whoopi goldberg was my hollywood square no way yeah 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 <laughs> and like i used to skip school growing up to like pretend i was six so i could watch prices right i'm a huge game show freak and so like to be able to be on uh family feud and hollywood squares was awesome it was, it was great that's so cool so how do you because you said that wasn't natural for you survivor change that now you're forcing these situations where you have to be in front of a camera, you're getting put into daytime television shows where you are a personality that people need to launch, latch onto. There's got to be some anxiety with that. What were some tools that we could offer somebody who's trying to grow into that part of themselves? How did you maintain that without burning out? Is this where we get into the talk about cannabis? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> plant, I mean, plant-based wellness. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, to be that is part of it for me. Um, recently uh i mean in the past 10 years uh but um I'm a, I'm a nervous guy right i'm jewish it's like in my dna that's like who i am um and so uh i've always been a little bit you know anxious and never really you know really knew what it was um but you know i don't know maybe that's why i seek out those high pressure situations in some weird way it calms me down once you get like you know in a cutthroat situation do or die i, I thrive on those moments but uh, yeah, with the, with, for me, the anxiety came post-cancer. Everyone is always like, oh, cancer's, you're, you're such an inspiration. You are a hero. You're so tough. But it's really like when a doctor tells you to do something, you die, you pretty much do it. There's like no choice. It's not necessarily hard to go through cancer. It's the after part for me. It, it's like the invisible scars. It's the dump trucks full of uncertainty. It's all my other friends are just starting their life. And I had the hit pause in my life. Like as a young adult getting through cancer, like there's a whole host of issues that aren't the same for like pediatrics. You know, they got their mom and their dad and their health insurance and everything's taken care of. Then you got your older adults who survived cancer. You know, they're probably in a relationship. They have a secure job or they're at the older age of their life and things are cool. When you're a young adult and you survive cancer, your whole life's in front of you and your whole life is different. You know, fertility, dating, health insurance, life insurance, job security. And so for me, surviving cancer at a young age was really difficult and I had like debilitating anxiety and fear of relapse. And uh, so I, I, someone introduced me to CBD and uh, obviously I was in college. Yeah. I, I smoked, I was, I mean, I was a little bit of an athlete, so I didn't really get into the whole weed thing. I smoked once second semester of my senior year because I wanted to do something crazy. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, that, that was really my experience with it. And then post uh, you know, once I stopped playing soccer, you know, it was around, didn't really get into it, but with cancer, I did. But you have all this anxiety and all this 
worry and then it does relapse, right? You said you had it twice. You had to go through that process again. How do you approach that? I mean, you, you're already saying like, okay, I'm, I'm through this. I know that it could come back at any point. I feel like I'm on the back end though. You made, how what was the time frame in between? Uh, 20 months between the first and the second. Okay. So it was actually fairly quick, but at, at a year, you're feeling good about it. I'm sure 18 months, you're feeling good about it. And all of a sudden smack, here you are again. What is that moment? Yeah. I mean, getting the news that the cancer returned was like exponentially more difficult than the first time around because the first time around, like it's going to sound weird, but it's new and it's exciting and you got all this energy and everyone's rallying behind you and the doctors and your friends. And it's like, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to crush this thing. I'm going to whatever. And you do, but then the cancer came back. It just takes the, the, the wind out of you. And I was definitely a lot more, I guess, uh, internal the second time around because, you know, everyone loves a happy ending. I just didn't know if I'd have a happy ending again. Right. So I didn't want to like be public about this story, but you know, for me, I did choose to, to go that route and make my battle public because I, I really struggled finding other people out there that were going through what I went through when I went through it. So like now I was in a position again, where like maybe someone else out there just got diagnosed They're They want to like see someone who's get, going through it. Um, and so I, I made this choice to make my battle public and I documented it all for people magazine from like beginning to end through my stem cell transplant, all that stuff, the highs, the lows, the gritty details, like all that, all that stuff. And, um, I think it helped. Like you think it helped you? Oh yeah. They say like focusing on the plight or focusing on the challenge of other people help you heal as a human being. So like I try to live my life these days, but I never, never let a crisis go to waste because it's an opportunity to do some really important things. Cliche, I get it, I know, but really like in the middle of my nightmare, if I could use this horrible cancer and use it to help other people, it just gives a sense of purpose to maybe like why this is happening to me and helping other people did help me heal. Like it really did. And since I've gone public, I've, I'm up to like 27 different people who've reached out to me, say, oh, I read this article. I saw this. I had that same crazy itch. And I went to the doctor and I got diagnosed. So like playing some role in helping other people get diagnosed earlier or helping to manage the care, it just makes it worthwhile for me to talk about my story. And that's kind of why like I'm out there just trying to just share the good, good word of, uh, you know, cancer, cancer research, all that stuff. Like they even talked about on Survivor, you know, so. That's incredible. Well, do you know what's more incredible than everything? Is this? Uh oh. This, my friends, is the Crunch Bowl. Are you sick and tired of soggy cereal? Well, I'm going to revolutionize the cerealing experience in one big scoop. I'm going to put the Crunch back in brunch. So you see my cereal bowl right here. It's got a shallow end and it's got a deep end. You keep your cereal up top. You put your milk down below, and you want a little crunch. You just tap it right over the edge. Introducing the Crunch Bowl for you guys. This was the result of my, uh, my time on, uh, you know, sense of purpose and meaning in your life, guys. Are you selling that? Damn straight. I'm selling it. That's your, that's your creation. That's my creation. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I asked you if you had something to promote at the beginning of this, that's what I was looking for. we got to sell these damn crunch bowls. Yeah. Good for soup and chow, chips, dip, salad, dressing, crudite, and ranch dressing. <laughs> whatever you want. Hot apple pie, ice cream. It's whatever you want to do. My gosh. That's amazing. That's the most versatile bowl I've ever seen. <laughs> it's the ultimate Super Bowl. <laughs> Can we, are you selling that for real? Can we put a link to that on the show notes to say, hey, buy the Crunch Bowl? Well, yeah, when's this come out? 
They arrive. Yeah, that's actually here. That's the prototype. I'll show you the real one. So yeah, I mean, if you really want me to get into the story, because it happens to be fantastic. And uh, so picture this, 1996, we won the NCAA, uh, the NEC championships. We're out partying hard, Vassar College. I get home to my dorm, get a giant bowl of cereal, may or may not be buzzed or something, start eating the cereal, pass out with the cereal on my chest watching SportsCenter. I wake up, I made cereal soggy, and I hate soggy cereal. So... I'm like, I need to invent a cereal bowl that keeps your cereal crunchy all day long. And so that's when the crunch bowl was uh, born. And so it was in my brain, in my mind to go on Survivor, get off Survivor, win the million, you get to go on David Letterman, right? And when you go on David Letterman, you fill out a card and like name, where you live, whatever. The last thing on his hobbies, the last thing on the list. And I said, inventor. The only question he asked me the entire thing was, so what have you invented? And I hadn't invented anything. I just freaking put it on a list. <laughs> and so in my brain, I'm like, uh, well, yeah, well, I invented the crunch bowl. He's like, oh yeah. And I gave him the whole pitch. And then he's like, all right. And the crowd goes wild. And I'm like, oh yeah. I'm like now I got to make the crunch bowl. And then it, I didn't make it. Other knockoffs came out. Uh, I started it. I stopped it. I went on pitch, man. I pitched it with Anthony Sullivan, and Billy Mays. Um, and then Billy Mays died of a of a heart attack and that so the bowl got shelved and then now i just resurrected it again this is a 25 year old dream come true it's the bowl that could and i just launched a kickstarter we sold it on kickstarter we raised uh twenty two thousand dollars, and they're in china they're on a boat right now and they'll be here january 6th heck yeah all right the crunch bowl <laughs> the crunch bowl that's awesome this is this is putting yourself in the right place you call Billy Mays. He's one of the best pitchmen of all time, I think. How how do you get that conversation? How do you pitch that? How do you put yourself in a place to say, you know what? I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to get someone's attention enough to be in front of them and show them this crazy invention I have. I mean, all right, here you go. So I'm in the middle of Fiji, the jungles of Fiji. I'm competing in this game called Eco Challenge. You ever heard of Eco Challenge? You've been in Eco Challenge as well. Yeah, I did Eco Challenge in Fiji in 2003. Okay. Right? So I'm in, I'm basically, I was a, a team of other reality stars. We're last place, where it's day seven. Explain what that is for people that don't know that are listening. It's, it's a several days event, right? Yes. Sorry. Am I bad? So Eco Challenge is like, makes Survivor look like Club Med. You're teams of four and you got to get point from point A to point B um, in the fastest way you possibly can and you're only allowed what's on your back and a map and a compass and so you'll get there's like water sections biking sections rock climbing sailing running uh horse riding so multiple different disciplines to get from point a to point b it's all like outdoor adventure not like the amazing race right where you're just like going to airports and stuff this is you in the wilderness surviving and transporting correct yes yeah yeah um, so yeah, my team wasn't that good. And, uh, we were basically competing for last place against this other team, the oxy clean team, which is Billy Mays team. So, uh, Billy Mays wasn't there, but the other guy, Anthony Sullivan, Hey, I'm Anthony Sullivan. And this is oxy clean. He's the current pitch man. Anthony Sullivan was there. So here we are in the middle of Fiji. And I'm, I was an infomercial freak. Like I love all that old school shit, Topsy Turler, HP 9,000, Taplight, whatever, every one. I, I bought all of them growing up. So I see Anthony Sullivan, like, holy shit. 
you're the freaking, you know, you're the, uh, the, the swift mop or something. That was what he used to pitch another time. I'm like, dude, I said there in the middle of the race, I'm like, dude, I got the best idea for you, dude. I got this idea for a crunch bowl. And he's like, what do you like? We're like, we haven't eaten in six days where everyone's covered in mud. And he's like, what is wrong with you? So then the show, we get off, we both get eliminated from the game and I'm seeing we're drinking beers. And then that's how it started. That's how it started. Take that shot. Even in the middle of the jungle of Fiji. Been eating in four days and all I want is crunchy cereal. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. He loved it right at the time. So then I went to Telebrands, you know, Telebrands is the ad seen on TV folks. And we, you know, we got, we got it going over there. But then, you know, it, uh, didn't work out because Billy Mays, unfortunately, uh, he was my pitch man, so it didn't work out. But to make full loop, Anthony Sullivan, still one of my close friends, and he bought a 116 acre hemp farm in Plainfield, Vermont called Mont Cush, which I invested in. And so now we are, uh, and they filmed the whole thing for a reality TV show called Kings of Cush that was on Vice uh, this past May. And so that's kind of my, another one of my endeavors is to do uh, the CBD hemp world. That's awesome. I think maybe for another day, but I'd love to talk to you about that or even just personal. Cause I'm really intrigued with hemp's going to be a huge thing moving forward. I think if, if we can figure out how, I know it's, it's hard to crop to farm. It's kind of, there's a bunch to that, but I'd be intrigued to hear where you think that's going. Maybe just right now, what, what got you into hemp? I mean, why that of all things? Well, it gets back to now the stress and anxiety post-cancer, right? So all of a sudden I was like, if I'm going to put this, I use CBD every day, like a, like a multivitamin. Uh, it calms me down a little bit. If I need something stronger, I might do like a one-to-one, one part THC, which is the stuff active ingredient in cannabis and marijuana, and one part CBD, which is the non-psychoactive part of cannabis, which is hemp. Um, so uh, if I'm going to put stuff in my body, I want to know where it came from. And so Sully was bought this farm and I'm like, I want in. So I moved up there. I, you know, I lived up there. I planted, I seeded, I harvested, I did all that stuff. I watched it getting processed. So I just wanted to be part of that experience and to create like the highest quality product. Cause there's so much out there in the marketplace. And for me, if I'm going to be using this every day, I wanted to, you know, really, you know, get my hands dirty. So you own part of a hemp company as well then, right? You're correct. Can we plug that? Who's that? If we want CBD. It's called Mon Kush. CBD, Mont Cush. Okay. Uh, yeah, Mont Cush. It's uh, Mont as in Vermont, um, which means mountain, and Cush, which means happy in Hindi. So it's happy mountain. But check us out. Uh, it's a t- reality television show called Kings of Cush. Um, and it's on Vice. You can stream it now on Vice. And uh, it's a somewhat entertaining show about two guys who started a farm. I'm not one of them, but I'm in a, a few of the episodes. Your career is TV. I don't know why you're in the soccer and all this other stuff. Like you missed your calling. Reality TV <laughs> is really your, your job. <laughs> I guess so. They don't make you rich. <laughs> I, mean, I guess they do. That's not a bad, I mean, yeah, that's a bad. One of them did. Everything else is a failure. <laughs> yeah, that was, so you took the winnings from Survivor Africa to invest and start grassroots soccer. Correct. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Gave you, gave you something to do with it. You know, again, I really like your ability to tie back. You're on this ridiculous survivor, this reality TV show, white privilege at its finest. You've got to go 39 days without some conveniences. And the whole time in the back of your mind, you're like, people are really struggling. How am I going to help them when I get out of here? I feel like there's, 
I don't even know how to ask this question because I don't really know what I want to ask. But like, there's a lot of people out there that have something like that they want to do and they just don't know how to get started and they don't have the opportunity like Survivor Africa thrown in their lap. And you might not even be able to help them, but would there be something that you would offer them? Because you've had a pretty unique situation, but how can they stack the odds in their favor to move that thing forward without a windfall of winning Survivor Africa? Right. Good question. Yeah. Um, I think it just kind of gets back to, you know, you as, you know, you as a human being, um, like know who you are, know what you bring to the table. Um, so you can find other allies or alliances, um, that can help move you forward in that direction. Right. If, if, you know, uh, if you want to work at a breast cancer, if you want to create a breast cancer organization, but you don't have any money to do it, like I said, you know, volunteer, get a job at a breast cancer organization, figure out so you can go out there and do it on your own. Uh, I say like, you know, like if you can figure out what makes your heart break or, you know, get your heart excited and then just go do something about it or join a group that is doing something about it. Because I think a lot of it is people are afraid to start sometimes um, because they're afraid of the outcome. Like, well, what if I try this and it doesn't work and I fail and then it just doesn't happen. So my advice is actually to do something just to, to get the ball rolling. And then um, I think you can learn a lot from, from, from the early days of trying something and succeeding or failing. What is, what's one thing or the biggest thing that you hope that other people take from your story? Hmm. Maybe like, you know, a, one person, a few people uh, have the ability to change the world, you know, um, you know, don't ever think that that can't be you. And, uh, you know, I always say like, there, there are two things in life that we can be absolutely, only two things in life that we can be absolutely certain about. One is that we're all gonna have to die. And then two, we're all gonna have to live until we die. So like, how do you want to live? Like, what is your story? What song do you wanna sing? Like, how are you, what is your legacy gonna be on this planet? And, um, you know, for me, that's just kind of following, like I said, what, what excites me and what, what makes my heart break and just trying to fix it do something about it i think that's a very different approach than what other people say like what makes your heart sing we have a hard time finding that because we've got so many distractions and little small interest finding the thing that makes your heart break is a it's another just as good of an approach but it's different yeah thank you appreciate you guys listening really i love your questioning is fantastic and insightful and i wish i had more time to think about them uh before I answered them. <laughs> when you're walking around eating your crunchy cereal, shoot us a, a message, like a video, and we'll post it. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure your message gets out there. Whatever we got to do. <laughs> uh, well, to be cognizant in, um, for your time, and we're coming up to the 90 minutes here, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up or anything we miss that's important? I think I touch on everything on the, I mean, there's nothing left inside me to talk about. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like, uh, I think I covered a lot here and uh, I hope it wasn't too like scattered and uh, it made sense, but no, I, I truly appreciate you guys having me on, including me. And uh, I mean, I think everyone's life uh, has a right place and right time um, for of just a lot of different categories within their life. And uh, I think just taking advantage of those, those moments, um, I think it's just uh, really important. Appreciate that. If there's a, there's someone that wants to look you up, what's the best place to find you? I've been doing a lot of stuff on Instagram. So uh, at Ethan Zahn on Instagram, uh, 
grassrootsoccer.org is the website for grassroots soccer. And uh, my personal website is ethanzon.com. And you can uh, find way too much information on there about me. That's another one. There's some sweet magazine articles down here about your Jewish values that in the next conversation, we're going to want to get into, I think. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. Are you, are you a tribe member? I'm not, but okay. I've been going through this and I'm really intrigued. <laughs> well, I convert people too, if you want. No, I'm <laughs> okay. No circumcisions. That's cost extra. Way more interested in that tr- crunch bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, with circumcision, you get a free crunch bowl with each circumcision. <laughs> uh, Ethan, appreciate your time and your willingness to share your story. Thank you for the work that you do and for sharing your message because the work that you do doesn't matter if nobody knows and they can't hear it and learn from it and grow from it. So thank you. We appreciate you. Keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you for having me.